Coming up, the Fall Classic is set as the Astros will take another crack at erasing some demons as the Atlanta Braves will invade Houston tomorrow night. I'll preview the World Series and their paths up to this point. Are the Bengals for real? What's with the Chiefs? Those are the top stories that I'll highlight as NFL Week 7 was a complete bore with a Week 8 slate looking just as bleak. Another top-ranked team falls by the wayside in college football as the schedule will heat up this Saturday with some great matchups, especially in the Big Ten. The 75th NBA anniversary team, you know that I have a thing or two to say about this. All of that and lots more as I canvass the sports landscape. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, and excellent spirits. The last week of October has arrived. Just six days away from Halloween as it draws near. Who has early tricks or treats in the sports world? You know I'll provide a few scares with some sports ear candy for your speakers or earbuds as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 221 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, October the 25th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. 
The Nets and Lakers are off to sluggish starts. The Ben Simmons saga takes another turn. And my thoughts on the NBA 75th anniversary team, I'll have that for you later on as we take a trip through the association. In the NFL, are the Bengals the top story? Or is it the Chiefs, considering the Bengals and their surprising win in Baltimore or the Chiefs getting dismantled? Down in Tennessee, I'll have all the Week 7, which was a complete snooze fest. And Week 8 does not look any better, although the Thursday night game looks good. But I'll have everything that's happening in the NFL, as well as what's going on in college football, as another top-ranked team goes into the loss column as Penn State loses that home to Illinois in a 9-overtime thriller. The first one of its kind in college football. I'll also talk about Alabama as they... Get off to another slow start, although they pull away late. What that means for the Crimson Tide as we get closer to the end of this college football season. I'll have that for you later on. Everything that's happening in the NHL as we're two weeks into that season. The Chicago Blackhawks with COVID. A lot of expectations coming out of the Windy City, but they have not won a game yet. So I'll touch on that later on. Everything to shake a stick at in the sports world. You know I got you covered, including my hero in Zero of the Week. And then there are two. We could finally talk about the World Series, get into a matchup that a lot of people certainly did not anticipate, and I know the suits at Fox that were hoping and praying Saturday night for a Dodger comeback, and I'm sure when Eddie Rosario hit that three-run homer off a Walker Bueller in the bottom of the fourth inning, they were spitting out their kale salads, coughing up their Pinot Grigios, knowing that the Braves were on the fast track to meet up against the Houston Astros, the team that everybody called cheaters, and rightfully so. But that was four years ago, people, and I'll get into that later on. But with the Astros punching their ticket Friday night, and the scene was set in Atlanta for the Dodgers to hopefully push that series to a seventh game, and like I said, for the powers that be at Fox hoping and praying for a rematch of the 2017 World Series to once and for all kind of put to rest whether it was the Dodgers griping about that World Series or even the Yankees in 2017, just those two teams in particular. But the Yankees long gone and now with the Dodgers exiting stage right, all we could say is that the two best teams are here and these are the two teams that we'll have to watch over the course of at least four games and maybe up to seven where the Astros will try to exact and exercise those demons from 2017. They were unable to do so two years ago against the Washington Nationals, considering that they had home field and they lost all four games at home. And now with Dusty Baker at the helm, and congratulations to him, we all know his journey throughout baseball, especially as a manager, coming short in San Francisco the following year, losing that brutal series to the Marlins, the Bartman game in game six, as we all know about that, having chances with the Cincinnati Reds in 2012, even with the Washington Nationals later on. And here it is, Dusty Baker, one of the storylines that we'll get to in a minute. But as we take a trip through both the NL and ALCS, I'll start with the Astros. Because last week at this time, and remember I was on last Tuesday coming back from my honeymoon, did not have a show last Monday. They were down two games to one and where the Red Sox just blitzed them in those opening innings, whether it was game two with the back-to-back grand slams. Then you had another grand slam in game three by Carl Schwarber where the score was 6 nothing after two and then 9-0 as you headed into the fourth inning. And then when we look at game four, 
where the Red Sox had a 2-1 lead heading into the top of the eighth inning. Garrett Whitlock, a guy that pretty much nobody ever heard from or heard about coming into the season, was a Rule 5 draft pick from the Yankee roster. And as he started this second inning, he had to face Jose Altuve. And I know everybody in America who watches baseball, not only are they sick of the Astros, they're sick of Carlos Correa, they are also sick of their captain and face of the franchise, Jose Altuve, but this guy, time after time, in big spots, no matter whether it's in the bottom of the ninth inning, walking off the Yankees as he did a couple years ago, or last week at Fenway, where he hit a solo home run to tie the score at 2-2 in the top of the eighth, as clutch as you could possibly be, and arguably probably one of the, if not the best clutch player here since David Ortiz left the Red Sox after he retired in 2013. Or maybe it was 2014. Well, somewhere around there. Because Ortiz, I believe, now that I think about it, 2015 is more like it. He was your World Series MVP in 2013. And then closed out his career where the guy was just money and clutch pretty much his whole Red Sox career. But now you have Altuve, who's pretty much been the guy since Ortiz has left to be front and center, to be right in the spotlight, and you want to say trash cans and cheating and all that, you could say that if you want, but again, that's four years ago. Altuve time after time comes up big when the lights are its brightest. And you saw that again on Tuesday night at Fenway or last Tuesday, and then that just propelled the Astros to a seven-run ninth inning. The next night, out of the gate, came flying... Jordan Alvarez, who ended up being your ALCS MVP. And they never looked back. Just going ahead and obliterating the Red Sox to the point that they went back home with a 3-2 series lead. Alvarez gets the scoring started in Game 6 with the RBI double. Capped off by the three-run homer in the eighth inning by Kyle Tucker. And the Astros, yet again, five straight ALCSs. Third time in the last five years making it to the World Series. And what could you say? Just when you thought that this team was bruised, battered, and beaten, considering that they did not have Lance McCullers in the ALCS, considering that Jose Urquidy got bounced in an inning in two-thirds in Game 3, you didn't know what you were going to get from any of their big pitchers. Framber Valdez, who had an enormous Game 5 start, pulling his team through the fire after six innings, giving them the length that they absolutely needed in the worst way. And Dusty Baker has been able to push all the right buttons. Granted, the offense finally woke up there late in game four to the tune of a cakewalk game five and then winning it there in game six in their building to go on to the World Series. And as much as the baseball fan or even the sports fan is sick of seeing the Astros, Even with George Springer, him going to Toronto last year, one of their big pieces over the last few years, doesn't matter. This team has guts. This team has heart. But most of all, this team knows how to win. And I understand they haven't won a World Series since that cheat year of 2017. But you look at what they've done here over the course since that time and winning all these playoff games, World Series appearances, I get it that they lost in 2019 when they had a 3-2 series lead going back home and you could question 
what manager A.J. Hinch did at that time by not putting Garrett Cole in Game 7, especially when Zach Greinke pitched so well and went and got into trouble there in the seventh inning and you figure Cole would have been that next guy up, but that wasn't the case. And even last year, down 0-3 to the Tampa Bay Rays in the ALCS, coming all the way back to tie before losing there in the Game 7. Again, this team has gamers. This team does whatever it takes. Yes, trash cans aside, I understand. But again, it's old news. You got to let that go, people. I understand you want to put that in the forefront of your mind, but that World Series was four years ago. And really, you could only truly attribute it to one game, and that was Game 5. That was the Clayton Kershaw start where he had a 4 nothing lead and a 7-4 lead, and he couldn't even get out of the fifth inning. And all the reports and the video that you've seen with the Astro batters passing up on whatever it was, 30-some-odd sliders that Kershaw pitched that night that they weren't able to get swing and misses or even swings for that matter. But the Astros, you got to give it up, man. I'm sorry. I am not an Astro fan. Everybody knows that. And yes, I did kill him for what took place there several years ago, but the team battles, wins, it doesn't matter. And you have to respect that. I don't care how much you despise this team. I don't care if you're a Yankee fan and you're just sick of seeing the Astros win time after time after time. You got to give it up. You can hate them all you want, but you got to respect them. So that's what I got to say there about the Astros. We'll talk about the series in a minute. Quickly on the Red Sox, my cousin JD, my old-time radio partner from many moons ago, he said that as unexpected of a season as this was, But knowing that when you get to the top of the eighth up 2-1 and for your offense to just bottom out from there until the last out of game number six, it's a bitter pill. And it is. You could break out the pom-poms and say, nobody expected us to be here. Nobody thought that we were going to beat the Yankees considering the Yankees' recent dominance over the Red Sox toward the end of the regular season. Nobody thought that the Red Sox were going to beat the Rays. And considering they got a big bounce on that Hunter Renfro ball in game three, in extra innings where the Rays weren't able to get the run across the plate where who knows what that series would have shaped up and turned out. But beating the Rays and then having that 2-1 series lead to where there were just two innings, six outs from going up 3-1 in that series and then for the rug to be pulled out from under them, uh, what could you say? That's just a tough way to close out your season knowing that you were literally just two innings away from being one game away from a World Series. And you know that the Red Sox will retool. They're going to probably get some sort of starting pitching. Their offense is okay. Their offense is very good, in fact. But you know, Bloom and the front office of the Red Sox, they're going to do whatever it takes to revamp not only that bullpen, but also to bring in a couple of starting pitchers. Because that was pretty much the difference. And even though their offense fell asleep, so he can't really blame the pitching there. Especially in those last couple of games. Yeah, game four, they pitched well up until the eighth and especially the ninth inning. You had a 2 nothing lead going into the bottom of the eighth before Kyle Tucker hit the home run. So you can't bank it all on their pitching. But we all know throughout the course of 162 games, your pitching is going to take you a lot further than your hitting will. Although, of course, you need to score runs. We get that. So that's the deal with the Red Sox. And as we turn our attention to the National League, The Dodgers, they were playing with fire, and I'll get to them in a minute. This is about the Braves right now because they're in the World Series. And give it up for them, even after Cody Bellinger hitting that three-run homer and 
for Mookie Betts to get the key RBI there to put the Dodgers back in the series two games to one. Follow that up by Eddie Rosario's heroics where he was the NLCS MVP in game number four. So then they went up three games to one. And I said it last week and even before the start of the NLCS, if the Braves were going to be up three games to one, they were not going to lose the series. And not just because they had the home field and not just because of what happened last year, which was huge, but again, that was at a neutral site. I just felt that the Braves had played very well throughout the course of this postseason, that they had the starting pitching, whether it was Max Freed, who did not pitch well in Game 5, as we saw, because Chris Taylor hit three home runs, not all against Freed, but they ended up winning 11-2, so Freed wasn't the guy to slam the door on the Dodgers season at that point. But between he, Ian Anderson who pitched very well in game six and was pulled very early, but Brian Snicker, give him credit, he pulled him for Ihiri Adrianza, who hit that double before the home run by Rosario was the clincher there as far as the NLCS goes. But the Braves, I just thought, with the way that they performed this postseason, winning those first two games the way they did, and then just needing to get the one game in LA before coming home, I just knew that they were going to win the series and that they were not going to have back-to-back years where they were going to spit the bit and cough up 3-1 series leads. And give it up for the Braves. What could you say? We know that they're led by the first baseman, Freddie Freeman, who hit the big home run there in Game 4, going back to the division series against Milwaukee. We look at Eddie Rosario, a guy who was picked up in the middle of the season. I know I talked more about Adam Duvall and even Jorge Soler, who came back after his bout with covid and had a pinch hit there in game number six. You look at guys like that who had to pick up to where Marcelo Zuna, who was pretty much jettisoned from May, although he's still on the team, but with his domestic assault case that was hanging over him, you weren't going to see him for the rest of the year. Ronald Acuna Jr., their best player, tearing his knee down in Miami, making a play in the outfield, and here it is. A brave team that won 89 games. I believe they were 89-73. Or as a matter of fact, they were 88-73 because they did not play that final game against the Rockies where it would have been a makeup game for them. And for the Braves to get to this point, and it was a season where two-thirds of it, you wouldn't have thought that it would have been in the playoffs, let alone even anywhere near a World Series. But here they are, behind their manager who made that move by pulling Anderson, where I thought it was a little premature. He was pitching very well. And I get it was a spot to just put it on the bullpen. They had a day off. Give Adrianza a chance there to extend the inning, which he did. And then follow that up by Eddie Rosario. So the pixie dust is in Atlanta right now. Because the Braves have pretty much done little to no wrong. Winning in four against Milwaukee. Winning in six against the Dodgers. And now, for the first time since 1999, I'm going to get to that in a second, the Braves are in a World Series. And before we talk about that World Series, all the signs and the fans and everything at the game, and they were exuberant. They were waiting for this moment. God bless them. But as a Met fan, you know I can't stand the Braves. And between the Tomahawk Chop, which I thought they were going to retire that, obviously that's not the case. They don't care. Which is a disgrace. To make matters worse, 
You're seeing the signs throughout the ballpark at the end of the game, party like it's 1999 to even ESPN and SportsCenter on all the social media platforms. They're posting on their pages, on their sites with their captions saying party like it's 1999. Have you forgotten who won the World Series that year? Yes, the Braves did make it to the World Series, but they got swept against the Yankees, embarrassingly. So for these party like it's 1999 signs, and I get it, the reference to the Prince song, and yes, they didn't make it to the World Series that year, but once they got to game one, it was a foregone conclusion that the Yankees, in the middle of their dominance, after the 1998 season that they had, there was no shot for the Braves to win this series. So I would pipe down on the whole 1999 deal because it certainly did not end up the way the Brave fan wanted to. So let's call it as we see it. And yeah, the Tomahawk Chop, please. Uh, they're still doing that thing? Come on. As far as the Dodgers, now they pretty much, as I said last week, they paid the price here in the NLCS by mortgaging their series future going back to Game 5 in the division series against the Giants. And I understand they brought in Max Scherzer. Now, Kenley Jansen was pitching very well here in this postseason. That should have been the guy to pitch in that final ninth inning. But as we know, Scherzer was going to be the lockdown one inning. You figure that, all right, if the Dodgers get get away with it, he would be the guy. And even though he pitched them to the championship series, but as we saw in game two, he only made it through four and a third to where he's even admitted that he had a dead arm. And you did not see him in game six as he was slated to start in that crucial game for the Dodgers. We saw Walker Bueller instead, who did not pitch well, although he did give up a run up until the home run to Eddie Rosario, but he did scatter a bunch of hits in between. And the Dodgers, I get a lot of people going to tease them for last year. Ah, 60 games, short season a championship that may have an asterisk next to it. I don't look at it that way. Yes, you're going to look at the regular season that way, but because they didn't have a home field advantage and an extra round of playoffs, remember they had to win two games against the Brewers before they started the division series. I'm not going to discount the fact that that's a cheap World Series, but this one is a bitter pill to swallow, and you would only hope, although it's not going to happen, but Andrew Friedman... The GM, president of baseball ops, trickled on down to the manager. Hopefully they will rethink and reassess some of the moves that were made this offseason. Yes, we could pin it on Dave Roberts, but to me, this is coming from the top. As to trying to predict or even forecast how a game is going to shape up before it's actually being played. And that's the problem with analytics here in 2021 and even the last couple of years for that matter. Because everything is about matchups. As I got from Todd Zeal, the former Met who's now on SNY, who had a great quote, everything's about the iPad instead of the eye test. Nobody could go with gut anymore. Everything has to be about matchups. Everything has to be about third time around the lineup. Everything has to be about lefty-righty. It doesn't matter if a guy's pitching a no-hitter into the seventh inning and is thrown 60 pitches. The minute he gives up a double, a ringing double at that, in the gap, up, oh, time to pull the pitcher. Which is an atrocity when it comes to watching baseball. Because a fan like myself who's been there as much as I've watched baseball going back 47, 48 years. To see that and to watch 
baseball unfold the way it does in 2021 is a far cry from what I saw even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30, 40 years. And I get it. The young baseball fan is going to say, well, that's not how it's played anymore. J Reels, you got to own up to it. Baseball, as archaic as it was back then, it's much better now. Oh, please. You guys got to go back in the history books and see for yourself. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that's what you have with just baseball on a whole, but even with the Dodgers. And you know that those moves, whether it's Scherzer Game 5, which I understand it was to clinch the series, okay, fine. But then you saw what happened there Game 2 to where you didn't see Scherzer at all. And then let's throw in the fact about Julio Urias, who they had to pitch in relief Game 2 of the Division Series when they were up 4-2 in the 8th inning and didn't trust the Kenley Jansons of the world to come in there to try to slam the door to leave Atlanta with a split, which would have changed the complexion of the whole series, you would think. Now, mind you, maybe the Braves would have still come back to Atlanta up 3-2. But at the same time, we don't know that because then you'll have Urias pitching Game 4. And remember, that's the game where, if you want to look at it from the big picture, that's where the Dodgers lost the series. You could argue that was Game 2, bringing in Urias in the 8th inning. But on top of that, knowing that if Urias was at full rest, Game 4... 2-1, who knows? Maybe the Dodgers would have even the series. But obviously we'll never know, and that's because of the moves that were made not only in the division series, but early on in this championship series. So now the Dodgers head home, won't defend their title. I get it that they were falling apart. Justin Turner tears his hamstring. You weren't going to see him. We've already talked about Max Scherzer. And it just wasn't in the cards for the Dodgers to go ahead and repeat this year. And that's tough. 106 wins. You beat your rivals in the Giants in a very intense and hard-fought series. But it's the Braves who prevail. And to get to this World Series real quick with the storylines, first and foremost, the Astros trying to erase the stain of 2017. If they win this, it will validate that. They could show the world and puff out their chest to say, I told you so. And you know what? As I said before, They got my respect as it is to begin with. And if they win this here, that's it. Wipe it clean. Now, Dusty Baker from the Astros standpoint, as I said, he's made it to this point when he was a manager of the Giants back in 2002, if you remember. And then making it to the playoffs thereafter and not being able to get to this point to where he could try to get that elusive World Series ring. So to me, that's another storyline that people could pay attention to, especially with a guy like Dusty who was out of baseball for a few years and then brought into the thrust of the whole sign-stealing scandal, him not being a part of it, but having to answer questions about that. And now here they are just four wins away from winning a World Series. As for the Braves, Charlie Morton, who's going to start Game 1, Against his ex-team, Framber Valdez is going to be the opposition to total rubber there tomorrow night in Houston. But Morton goes up against the team, and he was on that 2017 World Series team. So I'm sure there's going to be some butterflies for him. Braves looking to win a World Series for the first time since 95. I know a lot of the sentiment is going to be on Freddie Freeman, the longtime Brave, to win a World Series championship, to go up with his MVP that he won last year. Brian Snicker pushing all the right buttons and a guy who 
following up Bobby Cox all those years? Can he go ahead and join him among the ranks of brave managers to win a World Series? So this should be a very good World Series. I could see this being tooth and nail. Similar to what we saw in 2019 between the Nationals and Astros. But the one thing the Astros will have on their side, they're going to want to get that one World Series win under their belt. Because I'm sure, whether it's down there or the entire baseball landscape, they're going to look at this game one as all the pressure is going to be on Houston. Not just based on what happened four years ago, but just to get that one World Series win at home under their belts because if they happen to lose tomorrow night, then forget about it. That whole team is going to be tight despite all the experience, despite everything that I've mentioned about this team over the years. But you could see, or you could possibly predict that this team is going to be sweating it out to try to do whatever it takes to win a game at home. Because they don't want to have that cloud hanging over them knowing that what took place two years ago. How I see it, I just think it's the Astros. And I understand people are going to say the Braves too. Remember, the Braves have taken their own steps to get to this point. They won four straight divisions. Remember, they lost a brutal playoff series a couple of years ago when the St. Louis Cardinals scored 10 runs in the first inning. Remember that? In a deciding game five in their building. Last year, up 3-1 to the Dodgers and they lose that. And then obviously this year. So they've taken their steps too. It's not like they've just arrived or, hey, this team wasn't expected to be here. Yes, maybe not expected considering how their regular season went up until around late July, early August. But here they are. And they're a worthy team and they're a team that's going to be reckoned with. But I just think the Astros, with everything that has transpired with this organization and knowing that they've made it here, it could have been the 27 Yankees. Well, obviously they play in the same league right now. So let's say it could have been the big red machine, 75-76, that they could be going up against. And not to say that they would beat that team, and I'm not trying to compare errors by any stretch, but they know what they're up against. And although they weren't able to seal the deal in 2019, I think that there's going to be an urgency not only to win at least one game at home, but also I could see them winning two games in Atlanta and then coming back to win a game six. So I'm picking Houston. Six games, split at home, two of three in Atlanta, and then they'll win game six in their building. And the baseball fan will be six at their stomach knowing that the Astros will be the team, quite possibly, to raise the trophy over their heads at the end of the day. A couple of quick baseball notes. Speaking of the Cardinals just a couple of minutes ago, their manager, Mike Schilt, because of philosophical differences, was let go, and then they just hired their bench coach, Oliver Marmol, who was only 35 years old, and the youngest manager to be hired since Eric Wedge, back in his days with the Cleveland Indians, but... For Schilt, who has had success there in St. Louis, we know about their 17-game winning streak, which pretty much set them up to get them a wild-card spot, and they lose a tough game to the Dodgers there in the wild-card, as we know. But Schilt, I guess he didn't agree with what the hierarchy had in store, and going into a walk year where he was going to be a lame duck, just thought it was best to say goodbye, and now they bring in Marmol, who is a young guy, and as we know, is going to be a puppet, 
because of how, as I mentioned before, analytics and how they play into baseball in 2021 and therefore in 2022, if there is baseball. And then you also have a situation there with the Mets where rumors are coming out that former San Francisco Giant GM Brian Sabian, who was the architect of those World Series teams in the early 20-teens, is actually interested in the Met job. And who knows if Steve Cohen, Sandy Alderson, etc. will extend an olive branch. They would be stupid if they don't. Because a guy of Sabian's ilk, remember he was in a Yankee organization going back to the early 90s before Bernie Williams, Derek Jeter. He was a part of that. Even though that was all based on Gene Michael, the GM at that time. But if the Mets aren't going to entertain even a discussion with Brian Sabian, then 2022 is going to be a lost season. And I'm not trying to make Sabian out to be Branch Rickey or make him out to be one of the all-time greats. But if his resume shows that he's not only been a part of a Yankee organization who built a dynasty in the late 90s and also a giant team that won three World Series in five years, how do you not speak to him is beyond me. So let's see if the Steve Cohen, Sandy Alderson duo will have sent a text or at least a phone call to Sabian to see if they could bring him in and start the process to bring in a vice president of baseball operations because you figure that Sandy will step down after that. So we will soon hopefully find out about that. And of course, with Bruce Bochy out there and Bochy being the manager of those World Series teams, you figure that could be in play as the next Met manager as long as Sabian is in the mix. So that's what we have with the baseball people. Let's turn our attention to an NFL Week 7, which is not going to be long to speak about because yesterday's schedule was a complete top-to-bottom abomination. I don't care how you want to slice it. I don't care about your fantasy teams. I don't care about fantasy points. None of it. First of all, the schedule was a dud to begin with, and you had a couple of games where you could sink your teeth into, but when we look at those teams, and I'll touch on them in a second, both of those games ended up being blowouts, one early, the other one late, and everything else was blowouts on the schedule. So if you're looking at, and I'm just going to go right through it, people, without any hoopla, fanfare, whatever you want to call it, it was just a complete dud. The big story in the Patriot Jet game was Zach Wilson going for an MRI on his knee, where the backup Mike White Actually threw a touchdown pass. He did throw an interception in the red zone later on. But that was the story because 54-13, really? Do I even need to get into that? Same for Arizona beating Houston 31-5. What's there to discuss? Tampa Bay 38-3. Okay, Tom Brady threw his 600 touchdown in the game where they had to fish the ball back from a fan. And then Brady, with a beautiful gesture, gave a baseball cap to a young kid who was there who was fighting cancer. Beautiful story, but the game itself? And then Justin Fields wasn't anything to write home about. The New York football giants, how about them, put up a defensive effort where they benched Sam Darnold. Could you imagine Sam Darnold being benched in a game versus the Giants? Although he remains to be the starter, but then now there's rumors that the Panthers may be in the fold to trade for a one to Sean Watson, and the trade deadline is a week from tomorrow. So... I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of rumors bandied about over the course of the next eight days, whether that means Watson goes to Miami, which has been the talk, shot down by the coach Brian Flores saying that Tua is their quarterback, 
And even though Tua played all right yesterday, he actually played pretty good, but he had a couple of terrible throws in the game. And the Falcons prevailed down in Hard Rock Stadium on a last-second field goal, but nobody really cares because, again, you had a Falcon team that can't get out of their own way and a Dolphin team that is already pretty much roadkill for 2021. Green Bay and Washington, the Washington football team had their chances. They had opportunities. They were in the game early, but they couldn't punch it into the end zone there a couple of times, especially one on a goal line stand. But they are the Washington football team for a reason. So the Packers go on and win 24-10. I'll get to a couple of other games later on, but you get the gist. Overall, it was just a terrible week. Do I even need to talk about the Thursday night game where Case Keenum and pretty much the Ernest Johnson was the hero of the game with what he did, rushing for 146 yards, a touchdown on, what was it, 22 carries as they had to squeak by the Denver Broncos? But with all that said, let's just cut to the chase. Let's get to the winners and losers of Week 7. Winner number one, and to me, they should be more talked about than the number one loser of the week, and I'm sure you could probably guess who that is, but the Cincinnati Bengals, you have to ask yourself, is this team for real? I'll get to that in a minute, but with the performance that they had there in M&T Bank Stadium versus the Ravens, who were coming in hot winning five in a row, back-to-back home wins, that Monday night win against the Colts, and then the blowout against the Chargers, in came the Bengals, and which was their biggest regular season game in, I can't even remember. And here it was. They played close, tooth and nail. Their defense was superb, sacking Lamar Jackson five times. You had Joe Burrow throwing for 416 yards. Jamar Chase, who has more reception yards at the start of his career than anybody in the history of the league. Now, that doesn't really say much considering that it's a passing league now. And when we look at the history and you can look at the Randy Moss of the world, the Jerry Rice, different sport back then the way it is now. But he is up top. You got to give it to him. 201 yards and Jamar Chase for all the talk in the preseason, how he couldn't catch a cold, let alone catch a pass. The guy's been an absolute stud. That guy is going to wreak havoc the rest of this year and his entire career as long as he stays upright. The guy is going to be a great receiver. But it's their defense that showed up 17 points to a Raven offense, as we know, when they like to run the ball. Lamar Jackson couldn't find his way against that defense. You also got two touchdown runs there, one by Joe Mixon, the other by Samahe Perrine. And the Bengals, not only tops in the AFC North, but tops in the AFC overall. And what helps them is that they are 3-0 in the conference, And the two losses were against the NFC. And as I've said time after time after time, if you're going to lose games in the NFL, you want to lose them to the other conference because it's going to help with tiebreakers down the road. Now, they're already done with the NFC North as they already played their four games. So from here on out, it's all AFC. But give it up for the Bengals. What a tremendous victory for them yesterday. And they got the Jets next week, which could be a letdown game. But I'll get into that when we go through the Week 8 slate, which is looking uh, just atrocious. The other winner of the week, I got to give it up to the Las Vegas Raiders for this reason. With the John Gruden fallout of a couple weeks ago, they win a game in Denver last week where nobody expected them to win with everything hanging over that organization's head. And then yesterday, all right, the Eagles aren't great. Jalen Hurts actually played pretty well, a lot of it in comeback fashion. But the Raiders are now alone in first place. The Chargers had a bye, so 
They have a tiebreaker against the Raiders where the Chargers beat them earlier in the year on a Monday night. But with them being 5-2 and two and the Chargers are 4-2, and two, they are alone. And they haven't played the Chiefs yet. And right now, looking down on everybody in the division, that was a big win. They easily could have been a letdown there, even with the game at home after winning in Denver. So kudos to the Vegas Raiders and Derek Carr, 31 for 34, 323 yards, two touchdowns. Great performance by him as he's showing another side of him that we haven't seen. I know that one year where he broke his leg, it looked like he was en route to an MVP, but now he's become the leader. He's become the guy that everybody's going to rally around, and rightfully so. He's the quarterback, he's the face of your team, and that's why they get my number two winner of the week. And my losers of the week, Kansas City Chiefs. I get you could say the Tennessee Titans, but the game was at home, but they just obliterated the Chiefs. And to me, it was more about the Chiefs than the Titans. Granted that they won that Monday night game at home against Buffalo, and they coupled that with the win yesterday, which puts them in a good spot in the AFC. But for the Chiefs, shooting themselves in the foot, their offensive line looked like the Super Bowl matchup against the Buccaneers, where everybody looked like a turnstile. Patrick Mahomes was running for his life. Later on, he gets concussed in the game. They only put up three points, just in an awful performance by the Chiefs, and they have to go back to the drawing board. And you have to wonder whether or not this Chief team is going to click at some point this year. If you ask me, I don't think that's going to be the case. I just don't. Not to say that they're not going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to, considering they have the seventh team. That uh, with the extended playoffs, obviously with the three wild cards, and you have the one seed in each conference getting a bye. But I don't know what's happening in Kansas City. It is just spiraling downward for the Chiefs. And their schedule, although it's going to be easy this coming week, they got the Giants coming into their building on a Monday night, but they still have to play the Raiders twice. They got the Chargers again. They still have a game in Denver, which is not going to be easy. Who knows what the Steelers are going to be like later on in the year, but Pittsburgh's going to go in there and their defense is good, not great. They got the Cowboys coming into their building, so they still have a not-so-easy schedule. So it remains to be seen whether or not the Chiefs will get out of their doldrums here as we approach the halfway point of the season. And one last thing, to go back to the Bengals, I didn't mention this. Are they for real? To this point, you got to take them a little bit more seriously than you thought, but I don't trust the coach. I do not. And that's the one thing that scares me. Now, give it up to them yesterday. They played very well. Their team was up for it. They knew that this was a huge game. But let's see it as we get into November and December when they play bigger games. And then I'll judge. Right now, you got to take them seriously. But you can't trust them. There is a difference. So, are they for real? Yes. My eyebrows are raised. But I'm not completely sold. I'll just leave it at that. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. Come on, you can't just anoint the Bengals as a team that, oh yeah, they're going to be primed for a deep playoff run in January. Come on, the Bengals. The Bengals. The other games on the schedule, I know Detroit were trying to pull out all the stops to get Jared Goff a victory in LA against his former team. And they got up to a 10-0 lead to where they had an onside kick, a fake punt, and a touchdown drive to start the game. But it still wasn't enough. Matthew Stafford, who threw for his 300 touchdown, not in the game overall, of course, but as far as his career, that's the old Kenny Main. He didn't throw 300 touchdowns in a game. I'm talking about his for his career. So the Rams were able to prevail and keep pace with the Arizona Cardinals. As I mentioned earlier, they beat the 
hapless Houston Texans. And it's possible that Tyrod Taylor may come back next week, so who knows? Maybe the Texans will be a little bit more competitive, but that remains to be seen. And that's what you got there in a week number seven. Tonight is New Orleans at Seattle. That's not a game that anybody's going to be running to the sets to watch. But I pretty much touched on all the other games. And when we look at week eight, which last year would have been closer to the halfway point, because remember, you got to get to week nine because you have teams that have buys, but now you got to get to week 10 before you get teams that are have played at least halfway through the NFL season. But week 8, you have an excellent Thursday night game. Probably one of the best Thursday night games ever since they've implemented the Thursday night game consistently going back, what, 8-9 years, I believe. But you have Green Bay visiting Arizona. So that is a must-watch. We'll see if Arizona could continue their undefeated season. And the Packers, remember, they've won 6 in a row after losing week 1 to the Saints. So that's going to be a great matchup. Other than that, you ready for this, people? Carolina, Atlanta. Miami at Buffalo. San Francisco at Chicago. Pittsburgh at Cleveland. Eh. Philly at Detroit. Tennessee at Indy. Eh. Cincinnati at the Jets, which could be a letdown game, but I don't think so, only because this is the third straight game that they'll be on the road, and after coming off of that high in Baltimore, this has all the makings of a letdown game. But... If Mike White is going to be a quarterback, there's no excuses if you're the Bengals. I'll just leave it at that. Rams at Houston. New England at the Chargers. Jacksonville at Seattle. Washington at Denver. Tampa at New Orleans is your late game. And again, this isn't the Drew Brees-Tom Brady matchup that we've seen, especially going back to last year. Your Sunday night game, eh, not bad. Dallas at Minnesota. And I give it up because Minnesota's offense is very good. And your Monday night game is the Giants at Kansas City. It's Halloween. Take your kids trick-or-treating. Go apple picking. Go pumpkin picking. I could care less. This is as bad, just as bad as yesterday. Because at least yesterday had two games. Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Kansas City, Tennessee. Give me any game on that Sunday slate that you're just going to say, you know what, I'm going to sit and watch this. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, I only bring that up as an eh because... Of the playoff game last year. And Baker Mayfield. Who knows if he's going to start. But you know that's going to be a grudge match to say the least. And Tennessee at Indianapolis. Based on Indy and what they did last night. And mind you. San Francisco is the other loser. Which I'm not going to get into right now. For all the reasons that you saw. San Francisco. Garoppolo. And who knows if he's going to be a starter. Come the latter part of the season. Kyle Shanahan did say that. I guess so. As him being the starting quarterback for next week. It's just a mess in San Francisco. They're my loser number two. That's how terrible this NFL week seven was. I couldn't even get all my winners and losers on the same plane or in the same segment. That's how bad it is. And that's how just uh, terrible this week seven and now week eight is going to be. So NFL fans, I know you got your stupid fantasy teams that you're going to follow and watch whatever. And I know that's just a grin of all those RJ Reels. Who the hell are you to say that? I get it. It's everything about fantasy right now. I'm in the super minority when it comes to that. But next week, take the kids out. Hopefully the weather's nice wherever you're at. And just enjoy because that's as bad of a week eight schedule as you're going to see. And the bye weeks for next week, you have two teams, not six as you had this past week. The Raiders and Ravens will sit out week eight. All right, now as we go from the pro to the college football circuit, 
You had another team lose its footing as far as a college football playoff berth down the road, and that's Penn State. They lose at home to Illinois, and when you see the final score and you see how many overtimes they played, I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind is, how the hell did that happen? 20-18 to in a record nine overtimes, first time in NCAA history that's happened. Jay Reels, please explain. Well, two years ago, they implemented a rule where the overtime, after the third overtime, so of course, as you know, in college football, you get the ball at the 40-yard line, and you try to punch it in, whether by field goal or touchdown, and unlike the NFL, that if a team scores a touchdown in the first possession in college, the other team will get a crack to see if they can go ahead and tie the game. And then once you get past the third overtime, everything is two-point conversion. So when you look at the final score and it being 20-18 to 18, and not seeing it as a field goal deficit or even a touchdown deficit, that explains it as to why it went into nine overtime. So put that aside, Penn State, a team that a lot of people thought with the way the schedule was going to break and having destiny in their own hands, knowing that the Big Ten is going to be, as I've said Last week and the week before, a battle royale because all these teams are going to be playing one another. The Penn State, Michigan State, Ohio State, Michigan, that whole conference is going to slug it out to see who's going to be the last one standing, not only to go up in a Big Ten championship, but even to be a part of this college football playoff. And that was just an enormous hit right there if you're the Nittany Lions. Illinois goes into your building, whether you play down to them or let them hang around to the point where it had to go into overtime and then to lose the way they did, obviously they don't deserve to make it to a college football playoff. So Penn State, we'll see if they can rebound here. Even with this loss, they could certainly get back some sort of confidence and pick up their play knowing that the schedule, as tough as it's going to be, knowing that if they beat the teams that are ahead of them in their conference that they're going to put themselves in a position to make it to a college football playoff despite them losing to the Fighting Illini. And I'll get to next week's schedule in a second. A couple other things from this past week. Alabama, who has a bye this week before playing LSU the following week, they pulled away late against Tennessee, but based on what you saw, and even based in previous weeks, whether it was the Texas A&M game, in particular, but this team does not look sharp, especially defensively. A lot of mistakes, a lot of breakdowns, not on the same page, and you know Nick Saban runs a tight ship down in uh, Tuscaloosa. So it makes you wonder whether or not with this team already having one loss on the docket, will they be able to not only get to the SEC championship game with one loss, but will they even make it knowing that they have to go to Auburn Thanksgiving weekend in which... Auburn, you know they're going to be pumped up and ready to go for that game. And I'm sure from afar, they don't want to look too far ahead to know that, oh, Alabama's slipping here even though they're winning and they're still blowing teams out late. But the concern for the Crimson Tide right now is big because with the way they performed there, and who knows, maybe this bye comes at a great time where they could regroup and maybe even retool here a little bit with their offense and especially with their defense. But they have not played well, or they have not played like the laser-focused machine that the Alabama Crimson Tide has shown here, especially over the last couple of years. So, 
Who knows where they're going to be picked off. As we get closer to that game against Auburn, I'll give you a better feel. I'm not going to right now give you a hot take to think, oh yeah, they're going to go to Auburn and that's it. For all I know, they'll come out of the gate here, blow out LSU, which I think that's what's going to happen. And then when they get to that point, I can't see any letdown. I'm sure Nick Saban's going to hammer this point home between now and November, what is that, 27th, I believe, when that game's going to be played. And then obviously they'll have the championship game, which will in all likelihood be against Georgia. You had Okie State, the Cowboys of Oklahoma, and ranked number eight coming into this weekend. They lose to Iowa State. So they drop down in the rankings. That's pretty much what you got there as far as the past weekend. Nothing else to really write home about. Everybody else was pretty much chalk. I know you had some games that were, I'm not going to say tooth and nail, but maybe one that could make you think, oh, is this team in trouble? But no, whether it was Oregon winning against UCLA in particular, it's the one team that comes to mind or one game that comes to mind. But when we look at the schedule here and the first game, high noon at Michigan State where the Wolverines will invade in what's going to be a big game for both of these teams, as we well know. Number six, Michigan going against number eight, Michigan State. And as I've said before, you have that game at 12, and then the night game on ABC has Penn State going to Ohio State. With the loss to Illinois, Penn State plummets all the way down to 20, where Ohio State currently sits at number five in the country. So those are two games, and then you got to remember, two weeks after that, you're going to have the matchups where you're going to have Michigan play against Penn State, and then Michigan State play against Ohio State. And then two weeks after that, Thanksgiving weekend, you're going to have Ohio State, Michigan, and then Michigan State go up against Penn State. So these teams are going to be duking it out here over the course of the next five weeks, starting this weekend, to see which one of those teams is going to come out as a college football playoff participant. Now, mind you, they still have to win their championship game, which looks like they're going to go up against Iowa. Iowa plays Wisconsin this weekend in Wisconsin, so that could be an upset special. We'll keep an eye on that. But when we look at the top 10 overall and other teams on the docket as far as the college football schedule, nothing really other than those games that I mentioned. You have Georgia going to the Swamp to play Florida. That's your vintage 330 CBS SEC game. But... The big matchups are going to be in the Big Ten this weekend that we're going to focus in on. And when we look at the rankings right now, we know Georgia, obviously number one, followed by Cincinnati. Alabama actually moved up a spot over Oklahoma, and that's the other game where Oklahoma didn't sweat. I'm not going to sit here and say that they were in danger of losing that game to Kansas the other day, but because... Kansas was hanging around, and even though Alabama pulled away late against Tennessee, they leapfrog over the Sooners, so now they're three in the country where the Sooners are number four, followed by Ohio State, Michigan, Oregon, Michigan State, Iowa, and Ole Miss. And then you got Notre Dame and Kentucky after that. And I believe Ole Miss has a game on the road this week. Let me take a look at that real quick, since they're ranked 10th. And not to say a lot of people are going to think that They'll be part of this college football playoff mess. And Ole Miss will actually be at home against LSU. And we know LSU, they're pretty much taking a knee on the season. 
But who knows? Anything could happen, and we've seen throughout college football, especially over the last few weeks, that the unexpected could be expected. But that's what you got there with college football, as this weekend will be a huge weekend, and we'll look forward to recapping it all next week as we get into the month of November, people, if you could believe that. All right, so now let's turn our attention to the association because we are almost a weekend. And I know everybody wants to go crazy about the Lakers and the Nets, both teams one and two. Lakers getting their first win last night against the Memphis Grizzlies to where Carmelo Anthony surpasses Moses Malone, uh, ninth on the all-time list. So congratulations to him. And then the Nets, who lost their home opener yesterday amidst some controversy outside of the arena before the game where we had a bunch of protesters standing with Kyrie not taking the vaccination where you had protesters trying to bum rush into the Barkley Center and we all know everything that surrounds Kyrie the Nets to where Kevin Durant even said in the post game after losing to the Charlotte Hornets how he's not looking forward to Kyrie Irving coming to quote unquote save us that they have to figure it out on their own and rightfully so and with the Nets losing to Milwaukee and getting blown out in their opener where the Bucks raised the banner of their championship and then winning against the Sixers there on Friday night to where the Nets and Lakers, teams that look to be on a collision course, although it's way, way, way too early to even think about it or discuss it, but those are the two teams that's going to be on everybody's radar. And by them coming out of the gate the way they have been, even the scuffle, Anthony Davis with Dwight Howard, as you saw, which was much ado about nothing. LeBron James hurting himself in a collision, probably day to day. He is LeBron James, although he has come down with a couple of injuries in his Laker tenure that have been much longer than it has been early on in his career. But I'm not going to get too crazy about what those two teams are doing right now. I know the talk is what's going on in Philadelphia as the next step in the Ben Simmons saga. And all I'm going to say about that is he needs to be off the team ASAP. I don't care what Daryl Morey says. I don't care what he has concocted. He needs to roll up his sleeves and figure this out quick, fast, in a hurry because as we've seen here over the last just five, six days where he got booted out of practice because he didn't want to participate in a defensive drill, Rumors about a cell phone being in his sweatpant pocket, not wearing a jersey, in which actually in his pocket was the label of a jersey, but it almost looked like a cell phone screen because it was white. So a lot of the speculation, people thought, oh, he has a cell phone in his pocket, which I'm sure is violating not only team rules, but probably NBA rules. And then afterwards, him being suspended by the team for a game because of that incident during practice to where... His camp and Simmons himself said that he's not mentally ready to play. So, of course, taking that tact and obviously mental health is nothing to kid about. But by him saying that he's not mentally ready to play, it's because he can get paid. He doesn't have to worry about being suspended. He doesn't have to worry about being fined, docked, whatever it may be. Because whenever you bring the mental health aspect into it, of course... Just like anything else, you're going to treat it with kid gloves and whatever's collectively bargained, you know that the NBA can't do anything to dock his pay or to add to what already is, I believe, somewhere in the vicinity of three hundred dollars to $400,000 that he's already been fined to date. 
So Simmons could pretty much sit back, sit out until he's mentally ready to play. But like I said last week, and even some of his teammates, not all of them, but some of them have even, I don't want to say turned on him, but they look at this soap opera as one that they don't want to deal with. Where Joel Embiid, although that's his brother, and he said in the before the home opener on the microphone to the crowd that we're going to support him. But at the same time, he did say that I'm not here to babysit him. And even though Tobias Harris has come out and said all the right things, but with the players, okay, that may be a fence that they can mend. But the relationship with the fans, the fans will never trust this guy as long as he's in a Sixer uniform. That's all there is to it. That's why he's got to go. So even if he discovers a three-pointer, even if he discovers his free throw touch at the line where he's shooting 90%, or if he has a post-up game where he has turnaround baby hooks, or a little 15-foot mid-range shot, doesn't matter. The fans want him out. And when you're in the Northeast, in this part of the country, they're not going to tolerate that anymore. I'm sure the fans have had enough. Going back to the championship, or going back to the semifinals there in the Eastern Conference against the Hawks, where he passed up on the dunk and gave it to a teammate where he got fouled, it's time for him to go. And I understand if you're the GM, Daryl Morey, you're not going to get back what you deserve considering his talent and what he's able to bring despite the fact he can't shoot the ball in the ocean. But he's going to have to bring probably 50 cents back on the dollar. And it's going to be tough because whenever you have a big contract and he has, what, four more years at $145 million, you're going to have to bring a big contract back. Who's going to do that at the start of the season? Nobody. So you're going to have to get a ton of expiring contracts that are players that are making at least anywhere between 18 to $25 million. Yeah, good luck in doing that. And you're not going to get a ton of draft picks back, so who knows? Simmons may be out to the All-Star break until maybe a team could broker a deal at that time, but right now, everybody's sitting pretty with their rosters. Nobody's making any changes. And this is just a disaster if you're a Sixer fan, if you're Doc Rivers, and even the team for that matter. Because the bad taste of last year, knowing that you are number one seed, you lose to the Hawks in seven games to where you lost three games at home. And then you go into this season, more promise, high expectations, and then you have to deal with this. Disaster. There's no other way to cut it. And before I get to the 75th anniversary team, because you know I have a thing or two to say about that, I'm not going to get too crazy about the opening week, although when you look at the standings and you see the Hornets are 3-0 to start their season, which, give it up to them, as a team that's looking to ride a little bit of the wave of last year, they did make it into the playing tournament, we saw them fold like a cheap suit, but let's see if the Hornets can sustain any type of consistency, and good play to where they could be part of the mix in the Eastern Conference. Not necessarily amongst the top of the conference, but anywhere in the middle, four, five, six in particular. Out West, Golden State's gotten off to a great start. I picked them as an under this year. I know people are going to say, Jerry Reels, you're nuts. But it's still early. Not going to get crazy. I picked the Bulls as an over and they're 3-0-2. So let's just see how that shakes down. But other than that, I'm not going to get crazy. I know the T-Wolves are off to a 2-0 start. All right, good for them. And the Lakers, like I said, 1-2, slow start there. 
Celtics won their first game in Houston yesterday after just a tough opening game against the Knicks. Double overtime, I get it. Both teams were tired. Jalen Brown missing a dunk there, which probably could have sealed the game, but... And then losing at home the way they did to Toronto by 32 points, inexcusable. But they did beat Houston. I understand Houston isn't the team of three, four years ago, but still. But the NBA can't get too crazy. It's just a few games in, but the top stories there with Nets and Lakers, sky falling, eh, way too early, but still... One and two starts for each of those franchises was not what a lot of people expected for them to come right out of the gate. All right, now let me get into this uh, NBA 75th anniversary team, which was released over three days last week at the start of the season and then Wednesday and Thursday to follow. Now, I tried to find, I believe there's an actual one through 75. I think Sports Illustrated had it. And for whatever the reason, I couldn't pull it up. And with everything that is accessible at my fingertips, for whatever the reason, it was eluding me to no end. But... Be that as it may, I know the top 10, I believe off the top of my head, was, and in order, Jordan, LeBron, Kareem, I think they had Russell 6th, which that's a joke. Uh, how could Bill Russell be 6th on this list? Is beyond me. Kareem 3rd, so I believe you have Wilt. I can't remember off the top of my head was 5th, but after Russell, you had... Bird, Kobe, Duncan, Shaq. Now, I've argued in the past that Kobe doesn't belong on that list. If you want to put him on that list, that's fine. Because to me, my top 10, if I had to rank just as far as that is concerned when it comes to this team, I understand you're going to put Jordan 1, fine. No ifs, ands, buts about it. You can't move him out of the top three if you're going to even rank that high. Because if you want to put either Russell, because he's the greatest winner of all time, and also Jordan and then LeBron, mix one of those three, that's fine. But if I had to rank them in order, for me, I'll put Jordan one. I have to put Kareem second. Kareem won six titles, six MVPs. He's the all-time leading scorer. And not only was he just a dominant college player, which I understand doesn't fit in the 75th anniversary mold, but... Kareem, uh, please, the Skyhook. He has to be number two. You want to put LeBron third? I don't have a problem with that. LeBron third is fine with me. Then to follow, you want to put Russell four, Wilt five, Oscar Robertson six, Jerry West seventh, Larry Bird or Magic Johnson. I'll put Magic... 8, Bird 9, and then Duncan is 10 for me. That's how I'm going to rank the top 10 all time. And I understand people are going to say, oh, but Shaq belongs there. He was the most dominant big man of his time. The only other guy during that time that was anything close to him was no one. He didn't have a guy going back to the 80s, whether your name was Hakeem Olajuwon. And granted, I understand Olajuwon did play, but it was more toward the back part of his career. And as we saw in the NBA Finals in 95, Olajuwon took him to school to a four-game sweep. Let's not forget that. But Kobe, to me, doesn't belong in the top 10, and for this reason. Yes, he's won five titles and the one MVP, and he's an all-time great, understood, top five scorer of all time. No fans, buts. But to make that top 10, as elite as he is, he doesn't crack it for two reasons. One... 
he lost a game six in Boston, a deciding game for them by 39 points, got obliterated. And there was a time right before then when Shaq was gone and the Laker team was terrible. And I understand you could say, well, you can't pin that all on Kobe. Understood. But he did have that stretch where Kobe was, although a prominent player in the league, but wasn't to be found in the postseason. It wasn't until later on, not only losing that game to the Celtics, but then the following year winning against the Magic and then to the Celtics after that. But then there came that stretch where he blew out his Achilles and didn't perform in the postseason after that. So to me, he doesn't belong on that list on that level where everybody else does. And I ranked Tim Duncan higher than Kobe on my list because, again, five titles, two MVPs, multiple finals MVPs, but if you're the best power forward in the history of the sport of 75 years, you belong in the top 10. That's all there is to it. And I don't want to hear anybody else belongs in that list. Now, again, that's my list. I get it. You want to slide in a couple other people. If Shaq is there at 10, you should put Olajuwon there before Shaq. We've seen what Olajuwon did in his career. And on top of that, winning two titles. And MVPs, etc. And I get Shaq, he did win the one MVP and he's won four titles. Understood. But Shaq had no one where Hakeem went up against the likes of Patrick Ewing, David Robinson. I'm not in 90s NBA mode right now, but he went up against not only quality centers, but all-time centers. Shaq didn't do that. And it's not to kill Shaq or Kobe. Any of They're all-time greats. We know that. But with the top 10 list, that's what I have to say about that. And as far as some of these other players that are in it, and I know there were a bunch of snubs. I know Damian Lillard made it to the top 75. And I'm not knocking Lillard at all. But if Lillard is there, how is Kyrie Irving not? And I am not the biggest Kyrie Irving fan. As people, if you've listened to this podcast, you know. His talent is otherworldly. And forget about the off the court stuff with Kyrie Irving. And we get it that Damian Lillard is more of a point guard, although he shoots the ball a lot and he shoots the ball from half court. He's like Steph Curry in that regard. But all Lillard has is a bunch of all-star appearances and that's it. And one conference final where Kyrie hit one of the biggest shots in NBA history by beating the Warriors in 2016 in the game seven for the championship. And I understand that Lillard lights up the bucket a lot more. And it's all about the three-pointer where Kyrie is more slash dash handle to the basket, but he could put up 40 in his sleep as well. So to me, I would think you put Kyrie and take Lillard off of that list. And again, it's not a lock on Lillard. It's just, why is he there? And you can say for a lot of guys, I even looked at the players that are in the league now, Anthony Davis. And granted, he's been dominant, whatever, but I thought it was just a little premature to put him there. Now, who's the substitute? I don't know. A lot of people could say Bob Lanier belongs on that list before Anthony Davis does. And again, this is not knocking the player. Davis, for the first seven years of career, he wasn't even, he was nowhere to be found on the NBA map playing in New Orleans. So some of those recent Entries to the 75th anniversary team, it just doesn't sit well. And I'm a hard market when it comes to this. I'm not one to be like, yeah, he belongs. Yeah, that guy belongs. Yeah, he deserves it. No, if you deserve it, you deserve it. And understandably and rightfully so. And that's the argument with Lillard being there, not Kyrie. 
Now, as far as some of the players that didn't make it or were snubbed, and I know Kyrie could be one of them if you want to argue that, for people to say Dwight Howard, really? Dwight Howard? And I understand early on in his career, the guy was all-world, all-NBA, etc. But ever since he made his way to L.A. the first time around, 2012-2013, his career has gone backwards. This man does not belong anywhere near the 75th all-anniversary team. Sorry. Other guys, Tracy McGrady, to me, he's borderline. He was dynamic, seven-time all-star, etc. But you got to give me more. Vince Carter, another guy who's going to make it to the Hall of Fame. More of a compiler because he played for so many years. We know how dynamic and how great of a dunker he was, but you don't make the top 75 to be an all-time great dunker. And we know he was a lethal scorer. Again, not knocking Vince Carter, but still. Does he belong on that list with the behemoths, the giants of the sport? I mean, you could argue Manu Ginobili more so than some of these guys. Sixth man, he was an integral part of the Spurs' success there in the mid-2000s. But when you look at how clutch he was, he was a big game player. I understand he didn't win a finals MVP. And to think Kawhi Leonard's on that list, but he's a guy that, to me, as great of a resume that he has, two times finals MVP, I understand a bunch of first-team All-NBAs, never won a regular season MVP, two titles, I get it. But sadly for me, I look at Kawhi Leonard more of a guy that is all about load management and playing 55 games a year than winning his championships. Now the Toronto one helps because even though he won a finals MVP in San Antonio when they beat the Heat in 2014, but what really sets it apart is that Toronto one. And you know what? That's not to say he's not deserving to be on this team, but again, it just makes you, eh, just makes you question it. You know, Alonzo Mourning, somebody put Nikola Jokic. Uh, come on, Jokic? And he's a great player. All-time 75th anniversary team? Come on. Chris Bosh, Bernard King. I mean, these guys were great players. They were. Great. But you're talking about all-time anniversary. We see Dominique Wilkins, he got in. And remember, he didn't get into the 50th because they put Shaq in. And a lot of people thought that was way too premature. But... Just a little fun. These are lists that we could talk about forever. But you know that I had a problem with some of these. And I highlighted some of those. Please, if you disagree, you can hit me up on any of my social media accounts to talk about that. Instagram, J Reels, J Reels Podcast. Facebook, etc. If you want to debate on my choices when it comes to this 75th All Anniversary team. Alright, before I get to my hero in Zero of the Week, I'll touch on what's happening in the NHL real quick. I know the Blackhawks are right now the big story where Patrick Kane, longtime tenured winger there, who now has just recently been put on the COVID list. So now the Blackhawks have been a team that's been hit with several COVID cases. Who knows how long these players are going to be out of the lineup, whether they've been vaccinated. I believe I read something to where 96% of the league has been vaccinated. So who knows if this is going to be a situation where they have to take the back-to-back test to become negative and then it'll be back in the lineup that's usually for players that are vaccinated if you're unvaccinated that's 10 days right off the bat and the Blackhawks were a team a little bit in transition and flux but people thought they'd be a surprise this year in the NHL and they have not won a game to date 05 and 1 and now with these COVID cases who knows if they're going to be able to get out of their own way 
to get themselves and their ship righted to have a season that's going to be worth playing for sometime past the winter break when the Olympics will take place in Beijing. Because as we know, the NHL players are going to be playing throughout the Olympics. And will the Blackhawks be relevant at that time? Obviously, it looks like it's going to be a long shot at this point. But early on, you have some surprises. The Rangers have played very well here. After losing their opener to Dallas, they've won four in a row and are currently atop the Metropolitan Division. The Hurricanes are undefeated to where they're 4-0. Also, the Panthers atops the Atlantic. Blues are off to a good start, undefeated. And Edmonton as well, 5-0. As they look to, with all their talent, and we talked about it time after time, led by Connor McDavid, if they could be a team that could finally make a push to a Stanley Cup for the first time in forever. Now, come to think of it, even though it has been 15 years, the last time the Oilers did make it to a final, but when you think of Edmonton, you think of the heyday of Gretzky, Curry, Coffey, Anderson, Fuhr, Kevin Lowe, go on down the line as Edmonton looks to try to reclaim that history more so than the team that made it to a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final against Carolina in 2006. A forgotten team because they were an 8th seed in the West at that time and they made it all the way to the Game's finale before losing surprises so far what's up with Vegas shut out by the Islanders last night loses a four straight after winning their opening game against Seattle so there's concern there for the Golden Knights getting off to a slow start we talked about the Blackhawks of course the Canadians remember they were a team that made it to the cup final last year mind you 55 points the lowest point total of all teams that qualified for the postseason but Maybe a little cup hangover on their part as they're 1-5. Other than that, can't really get too crazy with what's going on in the NHL, but we have seen a little bit of separation between the teams that have gotten off to fast starts that were expected and the teams off to very slow starts as we just touched on. So we'll keep an eye on those teams as we move into the month of November. Now let me cut to the chase, people. Get to my hero in zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Jaguars defensive end, Dewan Smoot who delivered his second child at home while trying to leave his residence. But for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the shower that his wife took before they were on their way to the hospital to where she had severe contractions. And as they're literally walking out the door, the head of their newborn daughter is literally on its way out to where Smoot had no choice but to play doctor and have the baby arrive right under his hands before they could even walk out the door. I mean, I couldn't even imagine what that must be like to experience something like that. And like I said, his wife had taken a shower. Who knows if the warm water or just the combination of that and the anxiety of just trying to get out of the house to get to the hospital. But then here comes the baby, head and all. And before she even lays down on the floor, here comes the rest of the baby. So kudos to you, my man. You're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Cowboy Safety, DeMonte Kazee, who was arrested Tuesday morning for a DUI, or excuse me, a DWI in a suburb outside of Dallas. I know Tuesday, which is generally a day off for the players. He was out Monday night, had a few drinks, and what do you do? You get behind the car or behind the wheel. Obviously not the smartest thing to do, especially in this day and age. I believe he posted bond. Who knows what's going to happen as far as, I think it's a misdemeanor, so you wouldn't expect anything more 
than what took place, but still, not smart, not wise. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, injured, or worse, killed in the process, but my guy, you got to be a little bit smarter than that, so DeMonte Kazee, you are my zero of the week. That'll wrap it up, episode 221, November right around the corner, people, the final two months. I have a lot in store, a lot planned for this podcast, trying to ramp it up as best as I possibly can since I'm a one-man operation as 2022 is pretty much right on the horizon. And I want to close out this year strong to do my best, be my best for you guys who listen in on a week-in, week-out basis. Or if this is your first time, thank you so much for downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. I understand there's tons of content that you could get from anywhere else. And even from my diehards that have been with me, whether from day one or throughout these 221 episodes, you know I don't take your participation for granted. So if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars. Throw me a review. That will go above and beyond to the podcast stratosphere to get and generate some interest with those that aren't familiar with the podcast. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, or praise, you could do so by the following. On Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. The J Reels Podcast fan page on Facebook and then the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, I'll be more than happy to follow up ASAP with you guys and gals. And then lastly, to support this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth, whatever you want to contribute, it will go a long way and I'll be just truly grateful for that not only for the upkeep of the equipment of the website that posts not only just all the information regarding these podcasts, but all the archive shows, anything that pertains to this endeavor, whether you do or do not know people, this is what I love to talk about pretty much since birth. It's been ingrained, it's in my DNA, it's in the blood to share my thoughts, opinions, analysis with nothing but passion, fire, everything. And anything that goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, even the octagon, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.